Listeners may find some of the details in this episode difficult to listen to. There are some graphic descriptions of the impact of fighting in Mosul at certain points in the episode. You are listening to the Visualising War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I co-direct the Visualising War Project at the University of St Andrews. Last week on the podcast, we looked at representations of war in the digital age, and we'll be staying with that topic today, focusing on the power of the blog to document conflict as it unfolds in real time. My guest is Dr. Omar Mohammed, a historian by training who founded the widely acclaimed blog Mosul Eye. When ISIS captured Mosul in 2014, he began posting regular updates to keep people informed and to counter misinformation. And his blog became a vital source of information for both those within the city and the wider world. He posted regularly throughout the occupation and liberation of Mosul and has since turned his attention to Mosul's recovery, using the blog to promote cross-cultural understanding, as well as raising Mosul's profile internationally. His blog has a lot to teach us about representations of conflict, particularly those that are produced while a war is ongoing, and it's a real testament to what the public documentation of a war can achieve in the aftermath as well as during a conflict. Blogging in a war zone can be very dangerous, of course, and for years, Dr. Mohammed kept his identity secret. Until 2018, he was just known to the world as the Mosul Eye. He ended up fleeing Iraq when it became unsafe for him to stay there, and he now lives in Paris, from where he continues to campaign for the city that he loves. Omar, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me today. Thank you, Alice, for inviting me to this. And before I start the introduction, I have been doing many times over the weeks and months. Let me just say something about the idea of visualizing war. And when you were speaking, all I could think about is how can I translate all of these complicated emotions and events that happened before my eyes? How can I translate them into words? And then I realized visualizing them might not only help the people understand what was happening there, but it might also help me to fathom the amount of fear, the amount of destruction, not not just the destruction of buildings or physical destruction. There is this kind of unseen destruction that happens and that it doesn't happen only one time. No, it's kind of like a non-going process of destruction that targets the deepest point of your soul yeah I mean I think for us the word visualizing is really useful because it is about fathoming it's about imagining it's about understanding grasping as well as representing to other audiences and helping other people visualize and for me your blog does all of those things in really profound and powerful ways Omar, I wonder if we can start by getting you to tell us just a bit about yourself. So you were born in Mosul. You spent all your formative years there, graduating from Mosul University in 2012. And you'd recently begun lecturing at the university when ISIS closed it down in 2014. Is that right? That's correct. The the day ISIS occupied Mosul, I was grading my students. And at that moment when everything started, when everything began with the first bullet that ISIS shot on the security forces, It began from the neighborhood where I lived in Mosul. I could see them from the window, from my room, where I was sitting. It was 
3 a.m. in the morning at the very beginning and I still remember this very well at the very beginning you could hear individual shootings like here and there it's not organized you don't feel that there is something big is going to happen but you could hear that those kind of individual bullets are growing to become something bigger so and then at a moment you could understand by focusing on the voice of the bullets from which side they are coming isis started shooting and then it stops the security forces start shooting back and then they stop and then those individual bullets start moving to a much more in a much more aggressive way and then with all of this chaotic feeling and fear then start this kind of like what i could describe as unstoppable flows of bullets that they don't stop as if they were just launching packages after packages of shootings and then after two hours it's no more possible to understand who is shooting what and who is shooting who and there you've just painted a really extraordinary picture. I think one of the extraordinary things about your blog is the way it documents how things unfold in real time. So many accounts of war tell the narrative from with the perspective of hindsight. And of course, your blog, as you blogged in real time, helped you paint that picture as things unfolded, as things evolved. And in those two hours, you were trying to visualize what was going on exactly. and try to understand that then comes through in all these blog entries. Can we just take you back to before the shooting started? Um, you were a historian, you were embarking on a new academic career. What were your hopes and dreams for the future and what kind of history were you working on at the time? I was too much involved in the Orientalism studies. We thought that this would be one of the best ways to open the doors of the university to the rest of the world so we could secretly invite scholars from the united states from the uk from europe scholars who have been working for a very long time on the middle east whether it's ancient middle east or devil middle east or ottoman or there were many orientalist historians so we would invite them secretly and we would hope this might grow i was working at the center of orientalism studies at Mosul university as a researcher we thought that this might take us from the isolation we have been living in. So we had hopes that, for example, we were able to discuss Patricia Crone and discussing Patricia Crone, who is an Orientalist and mentioning only her name in such dangerous environment could lead to our death. We could get killed because there is a very big controversy about Patricia, her book, the Hagarism and many other things. But we were able at one moment in Muslim University to discuss her book. I mean, it's not about to agree with her or not. I'm saying that we were able to discuss what was in fact forbidden to be discussed. When I saw this, I said to myself, like, we are doing something. And this center is going to serve to make Mosul at the center of Iraq again. Very much a sense there that you're studying, you're researching under conflict long before the ISIS occupation in 2014, or you're researching and working in very difficult circumstances. Besides doing such kind of a dangerous research, I would say, I've never stopped recording the daily events in Mosul since 2003. And in fact, the moment I started realizing the importance of 
documenting what I see, it also started with another war. It started with the 1990s. If we trace back the events, if we unfold them in a backward way, everything with me started with war. Mm -hmm. My name was a result of the war. I was named Omar. Not because the name is, is nice, because Iraq was in a chaotic moment of sectarianism between Iraq and Iran during the Iraqi Iranian war. So I had to carry a name that made me a target for all my life. And when 2005, 2006 and seven sectarian war happened in Iraq, people who would have my name, they would get killed just because having this name. It's the same for people who might have another names that represent the Shia or we were being targeting for our names. But then I look back, I didn't choose this name, which led me, Alice, to start digging in the history to find a possible alternative to the name, that this name might not be only for this historical context. It might be from something different. So I would find a name of a Hebrew king called Omer. So I said like, Yes, so probably my name traced back to that direction, not to this direction, just to keep myself protected from being targeted just because I am named after a person who is part of the historical conflict. And all of this, all of this shapes our identity. It shapes our culture. It shapes even our fears. Yeah. And so from 2003 in particular, you started keeping a record of life in Mosul conflict and so on. But that is something you kept privately, is that right? That's correct, yeah. I It began with the moment in 2003 on 10th of April. It was Friday when the US troops entered Mosul. And it's the moment when the imam of the mosque was still praying in the name of the president of Iraq, Saddam Hussein. So in Mosul, things were still under the regime, although everything around us collapsed. And while he was saying the usual sentence, that is, it's, it's something comes from the authorities to the preachers of the mosque for a Friday ceremony. So he was saying, may God protect the president and the nation. Alice, after a few seconds, it was only seconds, when the same man started shouting after he saw the Humvee with American soldiers declaring that the regime has fallen, he started shouting, it's the day of freedom. May God send this dictator to hell. This shocked me. I mean, what's happening? What's happening here? This guy was still praying in the name of this president. And now he's saying things against him. And now he's mentioning the word freedom. What's happening here? And then I realized that something has changed. Something deep has changed. And from that moment, I started recording everything I would see and documenting that change. It was focusing all what I want to document wasn't only just major events. I don't believe that history is, is shaped with the major events. The major events are nothing but the appearances of the history. It's kind of like just the results that the players or the actors in the history would put on the top of the history. But in fact, history is deeply shaped by the smallest details. History is a result of very small details that happens here and there. And if we miss them, we will really miss the real meaning of history. I don't, I don't believe that history is, for example, the US declaring war or invasion of Iraq. That's a result. That's the end of a very long story that has too many details that 
requires a generation to, to go through it. So I would document things about the social life, the economical life, sometimes about the impact of the prices of the exchange rate of the US dollar with the Iraqi dinar on the market, especially the old market. And I would at the same time listen to my mother and would record things from what she say. And sometimes what you could read in what I documented is my mother is telling me a story, a folklore story, but she is telling me this story after we have witnessed a certain event in our current time. So she would recall historical events or folklore stories to compare the the situation or to explain it to her kids. And then a conversation in the university, I would record it, a conversation with American soldier. There are several funny, funny, funny things that happened in front of me and I would record them. The way of an American soldier driving his Humvee and hitting the other civilian drivers in the middle of the street and he starts like making fun of this and they say like ah don't 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 get me wrong i am just joking while everyone is afraid another thing i would record is when a bomb explodes in the middle of the street and how everything moves from a very peaceful space into a completely destroyed space physically mentally emotionally and all the different levels and I'm sorry for what I'm going to say now, because starting from 2005, the images are no more even safe to be told to people who are under 18. It's going to be very difficult to describe it because from that time on, I thought that discussing the parts of a human body is only in anatomy. It's only in the medicine. It's only in such kind of a space. But Alice, I started seeing not a full body of a human, a hand, a flesh, a small piece of of the head of a person was shattered by the bomb, fingers of a person on on the street, the head of a woman was cut off from her body. That's what started coming day after day. A bus full of people, they were all executed inside the bus and the bus would be put on fire, setting a man on fire in front of everyone else and the man i don't know was it him screaming or the fire screaming that i cannot consume this human and everyone is silent my professor who was teaching me medieval middle east and this was my start also with starting the ancient manuscripts and the old manuscripts i worked hard to prepare the manuscript i edited for him because this is what he gave us as a homework when i was at the university He's like, you get this manuscript, you go and edit the manuscript. And I worked so hard on this. When I come back to the university, I find out my professor was killed by the terrorist and that the university is afraid of even making this public or even paying respect to him or saying something like bringing the students and the teachers and start to do something about the professor who was just killed like this. And I still don't know what to do with this manuscript that I edited. I still don't know where will I send this. I mean, I was coming out from my house. It was the late afternoon. I was so happy. And I still remember this. I had new clothes, new parfum. I was very young and happy just to go out to see the life. When I went out, I would see a woman on the street being shot in the head. I still remember even 
the color of her clothes. I remember that she had a red dress with flowers drawn on the red. They are white and yellow. And she was dead, but there was something alive about her. More than the people I saw in the street. They looked more dead than she did. Through fear and a sense of oppression. So, Omar, you know, you saw terrible, terrible things. And you mentioned that these were things that people didn't actually want to talk about. The university wasn't sure what to do with the news that your professor had been killed and so on. And is that one of the things that then motivated you to start blogging publicly, but obviously in secret, anonymously? That's correct, Alice, because... Remembering that professor, I thought that mentioning his name publicly is important. Protecting his name from being forgotten is very important. He wasn't only just a number. He should never be transformed into part of the statics of the killed people, executed people. He was a person who has been interacting with his students, who has been trying to contribute to knowledge. He had dreams. He had imagination, he had perspective, he he had his good things, he had his bad things. He had everything that makes him a human. We should never allow this to be transformed into numbers. And that's why one of the essential and fundamental elements you could read in my history, when it will be once hopefully published, is that you'll find lots of names and biographies of those names that everyone, whether he is the preparator or the victim, names should be mentioned. We cannot treat them as numbers. Absolutely. We might come on to this in a bit, but, uh, you know, one of the blog posts that you posted, I think, in 2016, actually asks other people to record the names. And it's very clear that what you were trying to do with the blog and what you're trying to do with the more private diary entries that you made that you hope maybe one day to publish is actually bring some of these people back to life as people. Uh, And, you know, that sense of remembering and honouring, as you say, not just writing them down as dots in a larger history that's dominated by sort of the big events and the political decision making but really bringing these ordinary people back to life somehow. When you first started posting blogs for Mozilla in in 2014 the first blog post was put out on the 17th of June there was a series of posts that day and, and the following days. Very early on your focus was clearly on providing accurate, up-to-date information for the people of the city about what was going on, what was safe, also countering some of the misinformation. So one of your posts from that day, for example, reads, what I've witnessed today is very difficult to express in writing. There are lots of fabrications and false news that have been spread by the media. However, they're contradicted by the reality on the ground. My job as a historian requires an unbiased approach, which I'm going to adhere to and keep my personal opinion to myself. I will only communicate the facts I see see. So I wonder if you can talk us through what your aims were very early on in in June 2014 with the blog, what you were trying to achieve at that point, and whether you imagined that you would keep writing it for so many years and how it would evolve. Yes, when when I wrote this, it's after what I have seen either on the media, on the international media and the local media. And in the middle of all of this, I also saw how ISIS or Daesh was using the fabrications in order to prove that Daesh is the only trusted source for the people. Look, they are telling you all of these lies and what you see on the ground is 
completely different. Then I realized that any attempt to publish fake news about what's happening means that Daesh will win. Because at that moment, it was a battle of who tells the truth and who can keeps telling the truth and maintain sticking to the truth, whether it's something you like it or, or not. Because it was the way of telling ISIS or Daesh that you are not alone in town and that Mosul is not a news media, it's not a propaganda, it's not a fake news, it is watching you and it's telling everything that is happening. It's a message also to the people of Mosul that truth what matters here because it can save your life. And to be honest, at that moment, I was still thinking in a way that this might not take a very long time, that this might, let's say, maximum take a few months, no more. I haven't thought that it might be like this. But then after a few days, no, this changed. And I realized that, no, those terrorists are here to stay for a very long time and that I should be prepared to what yet to come. Had I not thought this way, I might have been exposed. I might have made something that would expose me because there are two different ways of thinking when it comes to a long-term work and a short-term work. If my way of thinking was only on short-term and thinking that they will disappear in, in a few months, then I might have even went public in order to make it more effective. But then when I realized that it's going to take a very long time, I said, like, I need myself to remain alive, to witness the history, to record the history, and to protect the narrative of the city. And it was a battle between me and ISIS over whose narrative is the right one. It's whose narrative is the one that represents the city of Mosul. It's the narrative of Daesh. And the way Daesh want to uh, draw the image of Mosul to the rest of the world, or it's the narrative of the people and the reality of the city. Yeah. And, and that's why when we speak about visualization, Alice, even though Daesh had high quality videos produced in kind of like a lab, they had like all of these cameras, a text from Mosul Eye, but this text is full of images, is full of descriptions of things that you don't even need to see a video to understand what's been written there. The text tells you everything. This text would be stronger than the video of Daesh. It would be more effective than the video of Daesh. So that's how, how Mosul I started like this kind of like a challenge with Daesh, whose words are more accurate and are more effective than the other. And this this resonates so much with what we were talking about actually on the podcast last week with Donatella Delarata, the the way in which terrorist organizations sort of mobilize media and become very professional at spreading their fake news about the conflict and the way in which citizen journalists but also historians fight back and I know that very recently another of our podcast guests Dr Emily Mayhew published a book called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and the Hope of a New Age and in that when she explores the horseman that represents war 
she writes a lot about you and she writes about the fact that one of the things that stood in line in Mosul against war was a historian, was Mosul Eye in the sense that the eye was looking, observing. You're, you're absolutely right that your text is full of these very keen observations that paint incredibly powerful pictures. And as a historian, this authority of objectivity and evidence and accuracy is a very, very powerful counterpoint to the fake news obviously that was at the time being produced and circulated. At what point did you become aware that the Mosulai was being read internationally and actually was becoming a kind of source for international media and people all around the world? It's when I received the message from a Mosuli person in Mosul telling me that despite the fact that they are living in Mosul, they don't know what's happening around them. And the only way for them to know what's happening in Mosul while they are living in Mosul is to read through Mosul Eye. Then I realized that Mosul Eye was really the window for those people who are trapped in the city of Mosul, their only source to understand what's happening, which also told me when I would read those international media outlets writing about Mosul, citing Mosul Eye and trying to make interviews with Mosul Eye, trying to write about the reality in Mosul, using the, the sources of Mosul Eye, I realized that I did make it effective. It's also when it became very dangerous that ISIS started looking to find Mosul Eye and ISIS started attacking Mosul Eye online and trying to find Mosul Eye on the ground. It's also with all of this coverage, I was completely alone and trying to be on different fronts. One, trying to fight Daesh with all I could have, which is the pen and the paper. It's the history. And believe me, Alice, those oppressors and dictators and terrorists, they are not afraid of history that is uh, lost in books and that's written. They're afraid of history that's written out of their authority and that the history that is made public as it happens. They are very afraid of this it's more effective on them than the weapon. That's why they hate media. That's why they hate anyone who might write things. And it becomes more dangerous. And they know it's becoming more dangerous for them when they know that Mosul I was only writing the truth. Because, for example, when a media say that Daesh killed certain like number of people, but that happened. And I would go public on Mosul and I say, no, this media channel is lying. It's not the truth. This didn't happen. What happened is, then I start describing things. Daesh would had hoped that I would fall in the trap of becoming a propaganda machine. And then I would lose everything. I would lose my credibility. I would lose the, the only thing that makes me more powerful than Daesh is the truth, sticking to the truth. Wielding the truth as a weapon. And it's clear also from your posts that you were writing, obviously, for contemporary audiences, for um, for people in Mosul, for people beyond Mosul to understand what was going on then. But there are moments where it's clear that you're also trying to record things for posterity. So there's one, one post where you write, a word I say for history's sake, the army was not the only runaway. Mosul was abandoned by its best people who used to cry for Mosul's justice and Erbil had, has become their haven. 
haven. Everyone has abandoned us. We're alone fighting uncivil attack. And it's very clear at that point that you're trying to document things for the future as well. And in 2016, I think there's an entry where you're urging the forces who are actually driving out ISIS at this point to do what they can to preserve documents. You write, I don't know if we will make it or not, but please inform the forces to be merciful and kind with us once they enter Mosul. Those forces are ordered to obtain all the civil records and documents from ISIL's headquarters in the city. If you enter those headquarters and you don't find them, you'll be sure to find them buried there. They've got secret storages and so on. Those records belong to Mosul and its people and they must be preserved. Mosul's modern history relies on those records. And you talk about the manuscripts that ISIS stole and so on. And there's clearly a sense there that you're not just recording things as they happen, but you are a guardian of Mosul's history for the future. And it's not funny, but the beautiful thing in what you just said, Alice, is that I am working on those documents now. That's wonderful. And that those documents have been preserved and protected and that I got the chance to go through those documents and to make sense of what really happened. Because it's very important to protect the history. It's all that's left for the people. The city is destroyed. There is nothing more important than the records that are left there. And there is nothing more important than understanding the history and prepare those events for the next generation. You have to prepare something for them when they come, because when they will be here, the next generation, the generation after, they will find it very difficult to understand what happened and they might fall in this kind of problems that would lead to conflicts if they don't have something in their hand to read. Because the problem in Mosul, it wasn't only just Daesh or ISIS. It's it's the misunderstanding that happened between Iraqis in general, and that Mosul was under the pressure of ISIS, under the pressure of the rest of the Iraqis. Lots of things were happening. Had I not started Mosul I block, Mosul will not be able to have at least a paper in its hand when it moves toward the future. When someone comes, ask the... As you know, as you know, Alice, history is not about the past. History is about the future. History is how you prepare yourself to face the future, how you prepare yourself to deal with people who would come from the future and hadn't lived these events. You want to tell them and to make sense of the events to them. That's what I was trying to do at this stage is to give Mosul its document of innocence. Or at least, as they say in the court, to tell the people, give Mosul all the benefit of doubt. Mm-hmm. Try to listen to Mosul first before you judge the city and its people. Giving this document to Mosul would help its generation to heal at the same time. Absolutely. And you mentioned courts. I remember reading one of your entries in, I think, October 2015, where you actually write, we're putting out this document for the United Nations, Amnesty International, human rights organisations, and to all whom it may concern, and request to hold those criminals accountable for their crimes and consider those crimes war crimes according to international law. And that's the point at which you say, so families of the victims, please record the names and the faces of people who committed crimes against your loved ones. And that's so there's a sense there that you, you know, you're offering Mosulai as a storehouse of names, uh, events, and so on, this trusted storehouse of evidence that is going to help people understand what's happened in the past as they try to heal in the future, but might also actually in some ways lead to justice as well. That's correct. That's correct. Yes, it's important to, in fact, I am trying to keep myself on this line of 
historical writing and keeping the history alive, trying to protect this history, but at the same time, preparing this history to be used either by the people or by the courts or by anyone who wants to achieve justice, to make it visible and available in their hands, to use it to achieve justice. And that's why I was asking the people, keep the names, keep the faces, memorize the faces, never forget them, protect your memory and record everything. We're going to need it. At one point, we will need all of these small details. So very much looking ahead as well as recording in real time. So your entries during the occupation are very powerful, at times very moving. You're visualising what's going on around you in all sorts of different ways. So that you know, you're countering false information. You're a keen observer of details, as you say, looking at what ordinary people are doing, ordinary reactions and so on. But I think in some ways even more um, striking is the keen and the at times anguished observations of the process of liberation. So I'm just going to read a tiny bit of one of your entries from 2016, where you actually, you address the dead. You say, my dear, the dead, we've talked to the living, but they didn't listen or they do not want to listen. So I'm sending my message to you because you are closer to me and my people than the living. Yes, we're closer to you. And there's only one difference between us. You're dead, buried in the ground where we are dead above the ground. And and you go on and you you talk about we've been calling to the world for two years now to free us. I said I've killed more than 8000 human beings. And that's a very anguished entry, you know, prior to liberation. And then there are anguished entries during the liberation where you say, I don't know what to write tonight. I'm writing, but I feel bad because I'm sharing my sorrow with you. And you talk about what you're seeing of, for example, children dragging bodies along the ground and feeling horrified because you're worried about what the sort of training of savagery and brutality of the last two years might have done to these innocent people and what might unfold during the liberation. And you talk about how ISIS might have deformed people's minds and, and their natures and these thousands of children who've lived through this, what what will they turn into? And it's it's very emotional, very powerful stuff. Um, and, and I wondered how much you remember writing those entries. And I just find it really striking that you're documenting history, but you're also asking these huge questions about how war changes people, but very much in real time as you're sort of wondering, you don't have the answers as you write that. This is sort of, again, this kind of snapshot of the experience of living through this and wondering what the future holds. These were the moments when I started seeing the impact of the time of Daesh or ISIS on the people of Mosul, especially its children, and how I started observing the change in the behavior of the people, and that I was so scared that despite the fact that Mosul will be liberated, but something is broken that will not be freed, that is the souls of the people. And that I even started asking myself and wondering like whether I asked this question, whether the war could also have not only a mental impact on the people, but it might change them physically or genetically speaking. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, but I asked the question and I, I wanted to know like whether the war changed also the way your body acts or the way your body reacts, the way your cells, in fact, works. Because what I have seen, what I have witnessed, can never be human. Is the human is capable of such atrocities? 
it's very dangerous. I mean, I know we have read in the history about the atrocities, but it's not like when you witness it. It's not like when you live this. As the liberation was getting close, at that moment, I was more concerned with what yet to come. And that comes across so well that it really is extraordinary to see you putting the liberation process sort of under the microscope almost. What, you know, capturing the uncertainty, the fears and this sense that you're sort of moving the city and individuals are moving into this uncharted territory where no one can predict how people will react going forward. What kinds of responses did you get to those kinds of entries on your blog? This is uncomfortable reading. It's uncomfortable reading for people in Mosul, for people beyond. Did you get different kinds of responses to entries where you were really expressing hopes and fears from the entries where you were countering false information and um, and setting out um, yes. what um, had really happened? One of the things that I observed about people who were interacting with Mosul is that when you write such kind of difficult questions or when you write about something that might seem not related to the current moment, because the people might not have the time to think about how the events are processing themselves, they might not be interested in this. They will be more interested in reading text that has emotions because that's what they needed. Someone to tell them that it's okay. It's going to end. It's going to be all right. And I also realized at least that they would be more interested in individual stories than in a collective one. But then later, especially during the battle, when Mosul, I started helping trapped families from being killed by Daesh or from being bombed. You know that Mosul, I was involved in rescuing more than uh, 92 families. I, I know them, all of them. When this started happening, everyone started looking at Mosul I as it's something beyond just writing history. This is to them an essential element of the city of Mosul that some people would send me questions like, what if Mosul I didn't exist? And the fact that not only saving the history, but saving humans, but at the same time, and here comes the funny part, saving animals. Animals were trapped in the zoo, public zoo of Mosul, a lion and a bear. <laughs> I still remember speaking anonymously to the commander of the CTS, the, the counter-terrorism troops, urging him to rescue those poor animals while I can hear in the background of the call, bombs, shootings here and there. He tells me, I am in the middle of the battle, but I will send a group of, of soldiers there. Don't worry. And I kept urging him, please don't forget them. They also have souls. And they sent a group of people to the zoo, saving the lion and the bear. And then communicating with someone, I don't know who is he. I don't know. He doesn't know who he's, he's talking to. He would come after the area was liberated. He would come with a full, a car full of food from Kurdistan to Mosul to give food to those uh, 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 animals. And then the four pause organization would, I, I would be in contact with them. Someone like made a, an email adding Mosul I, telling them like, look, Mosul I has found those animals. How can you help? And they come all the way from the UK to Jordan then to Kurdistan, to Mosul, treat the animals, treat the lion and the bear, try to, to give them medical treatment, taking them to safety. All of this while also Mosul, I was protecting the names, writing the names, 
documenting the, the destruction, documenting those who has fallen because of the airstrikes of, or because of the battle, documenting what's happening on the crossroads of the city when the people are escaping, documenting what's happening in the uh, MSF hospitals, documenting snipers killing families who are escaping, at the same time speaking to my family, which was trapped in the middle of the house. My sister would tell me, Omar, we are sorry that we couldn't make it, but we have to tell you goodbye. And that I urge them to stay alive until someone comes to, to rescue them. All of this, I am telling them in words now, Alice, but these are unbearable things to live at the moment, that all of them were happening at the same time. It requires more than a human being to fathom, to understand, to be able to live with this. And it has a cost. And the cost doesn't appear at the moment. It comes later. But that, I suppose, is one of the extraordinary legacies of the Mosulai blogs in that you have recorded this huge, diverse range of things, you know, documenting events, documenting feelings, people's despair, your own despair, some of the lighter moments as well, documenting all of that so that, in fact, there now is this incredible archive which people can process slowly and through which people can begin to understand the full horrors, the extraordinarily complex range of things that were going on. I, I think that it's interesting you said that, you know, people responding to the blog were more interested in individual stories than collective ones. And it seems to me that that's one of the reasons why so much trust has ended up being placed in Mosulai, because this it became really authoritative because it wasn't the authorities and it became this kind of point of light in the city of Mosul which people increasingly turned to and then that gave you the authority then to talk to high-ranking commanders and ask them to rescue the bear and the lion and get out and rescue you know 92 families as well and so it's extraordinary you know the blog shows the power of what history writing actually can achieve and it's you know this live history writing that becomes this incredible force in a conflict zone that's absolutely accurate the way you described it uh, alice yes history history has never been the just a war words of a historian being written in a book it's never been like this history is the events that we are living it's the time we record because it's just like when you use the camera to take a picture, you freeze the time. This picture you have taken, it froze the time. The time is frozen at this moment, but the time keeps moving. But when it comes to the history, you are the one who is going to control how the time will move forward. And that's why history is very powerful, but it's very dangerous. It's very effective, but it's something that you don't easily, I mean, I mean, the, the, especially the people who don't have access to all the background elements of how history is made, it might be destructive for them. History, as, as I tell my students, I tell them like, history is not supposed to make you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. Because if it does make you feel comfortable, you should know that there's something wrong about the history you are reading. Because history is the way that humanity was able to transform all of our uh, physical and mental emotional elements into words and those words are meant to remain alive yeah 
Absolutely. And not to simplify so many historical accounts of wars that are written with hindsight, select and simplify and focus on some of the major events and the political decision making and so on. And, and Mosulai is a very different kind of history. Since the liberation, you have continued to block. The blog is still live and going very strong. And I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about how its focus has changed. You're focusing very much now on Mosul's recovery, reviving the spirit of Mosul. Yes. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? This is another chapter in the history of Mosul, which is very important to be recorded, which is how the people of Mosul are responding to disaster and destruction that happened. And it's so beautiful to see that so far, the, the response was really beautiful. You would see young people going out, trying to clean out the streets, clean the buildings, rebuild everything. It's also, there is something like, there is social history. The social history that has been happening ongoing now is how the old families that used to have some power in the past two centuries are trying to make their way into the post-Daesh time in Mosul, trying to reclaim the old authority. There's lots of social history here is happening for the future researchers, for the future historians. There's lots of things about the economical history of Mosul at the time, how the people of Mosul are trying to make use of the funds they have or the things that they have saved in the past. And now they are trying to make their way to recover their city how the international community is interacting with Mosul, the rise of those individuals who will have real impact and effective impact on the future of the city. A young musician, a female singer, the entrepreneurs, they are all young and women. The other things like we preserve the books from the destroyed library. We launched the campaign to preserve the library of Mosul and asking the people, as I remember, Alice, it was just a tweet. I told the people like, our library is destroyed. We need books. Thousands of books started coming from all over the world. And they are still coming, in fact. The books are still coming. Like they have the address of Mosul I and they send it to, to Mosul I and then we would give it to the library. Like organizing a musical concert on the top of the destroyed site of Prophet Yuna, or in Arabic, they call him Yunus, or it's Yuna in, in, or Yunan. It's the only site that it's not only a shared history between Muslims, Christians, and Jews. It's also, it has the layers of the Assyrian history, and then you have the layers of the prehistory. It seems that this is the location where every important decision for the future of Mosul should be made there because that's where you satisfy everyone that you are all represented. So we would organize a musical there. And I remember someone saying, it was very funny. He said like, this could be the best thing that ever happened to this prophet since he arrived to the city, <laughs> that he is listening to music. Yeah, I mean, what all of this thing that we are doing now is also aiming at reconnecting Mosul with its global environment. Because I've never believed that Mosul is a local city. It was never a local city. Take its name, for example. Mosul in Arabic means to connect things because the city cannot survive without having this connection. So now I'm trying to speak about Mosul or do things about Mosul in Europe, the United States. I'm going to Germany next month 
to speak about Mosul, and then into the United States again to in October. And there are many other places where I go and, and I speak about Mosul. Uh, uh, students comes to me asking me like, we would like to write about things in, in Mosul. What do you advise us to, to do? I say like, write about the women in Mosul. So I'm trying to bring back Mosul on the, like the international stage, which is happening, but it takes time. I mean, we have the revived spirit of Mosul and we have many other important things that are happening. But the most important part is that I see the youth are eager to meet with the future, that they are waiting for the future and that they are understanding that they need to be prepared for the future. Yeah, the moment I realize and recognize this kind of understanding among the youth, I felt, I think I am safe now. That's good to hear. But they are being helped in this by a historian. And it's wonderful to hear you talk about, for example, the library project. You know, obviously, Mosul University Library had one of the most extraordinary research libraries in the whole of the Middle East before ISIS destroyed most of it. And so in some ways, you could tell a story where you're sort of coming back full circle to your life as an academic before the occupation. But it's too easy to tell that story in a light and simple way. You know, it's important not to underestimate the effort, the work, the difficulties, the challenges involved yes. in that, and not to see it as something coming full circle, but to see it actually as a, as a, as a long and arduous journey in some ways. And I think this is where, again, where Mosul Eye is playing an incredibly powerful role. And you're now visualizing what happens after conflict you're helping us visualize that visualize it as a process not just an event and yes. uh, you know and something wonderful but a difficult hard one process and i think with project green mosul which you're running one of the things that you're doing there is actually sort of using narrative and images of rebuilding and images of peace and hope that you're actually trying to shape how people visualize the future as a way of realizing it somehow this connects with something we've been talking about with another scholar um frank muller who works on peace photography and the idea that if you create images of peace and images yes. of reconstruction and healing then you're more likely to get there and i think this is something again that mozalai is actually actively pursuing that's that's precisely what's happening alice because i realized that even before Daesh, when I started looking now, started looking at the city of Mosul and how it was like in terms of the urban design and what should have been changed, how we should have treated or worked on the urban structure of Mosul, especially its social fabrics in the old city, in the old part, what we could have done in order to help the people to probably take a different direction. That's what I am realizing now that we need to create a completely different images around the people. Because I believe that the imagination of the people has never been addressed properly. Now I am targeting the imagination of the people. So what I am doing, for example, I am imagining a street in the middle of Mosul and saying like, how can I make this street makes the people who are living here think, for example, about applying for a scholarship in social sciences or in IT developing, et cetera, et cetera. What do, what do they need here? What kind of images do they need? And then I start like, I say like, they need trees here. They need an open space there. They need certain kind of paintings around the space. And that's exactly when I take it from imagination into action, which is precisely what's happening now. We are planting trees in certain locations 
in Mosul that will make people see completely different image. We are transforming all the historical sites into what we call the green heritage. So every historical site will have several trees and we have given them the option that you select the trees you want. We have 10 varieties. We tell them like, select the trees that you want to be put in your uh, site. There will be trees in the museum of Mosul. There will be trees in the mosque. There will be trees in the church. They all will have one thing in, in common. They will all have trees and trees do not need a religion, do not need, need an identity, do not need anything. They just need you to look at them, to breathe the oxygen they are producing. At the same time, Alice, it's an attempt to also connect Mosul to the global trend of the climate change. Because by changing the image and the way the people are looking at themselves and their city, I am also trying to give them a way to be connected to a global trend. So they will not feel that they are alone again. It's amazing the work you're doing, Omar. You know, you spent years helping people in Mosul and the wider world visualize war as it was unfolding. And now you're helping people visualize peace and cross-cultural understanding and, you know, Mosul's place in the world as somewhere that, you know, is contributing to the climate change challenges and so many other things. You've been winning all sorts of awards and fellowships and international recognition over the last few years. And you yourself are now a very important part of history. You're written about by others. And your blog, The Mosulai, is just an extraordinary archive of real-time responses, hopes and fears as the occupation and the liberation played out. An eyewitness account, which is itself now a very precious historical document, but as we've said, wonderfully still live and ongoing and doing incredible work into the future. Omar, it's been a real privilege to discuss it with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Alice. And honestly, I would say that I think, yes, we need to visualize history, whether it's war or peace. I think it's not only going to help people to understand, but it did, in fact, just in this like hour of speaking about this in this way, it did help me even to think about the events that happened, that they had some impact on the people. It makes me like, okay, Omar, it's okay that you went through these kind of difficulties but it was worth it. So thank you, Alice. Thank you for reassuring me that it was really worth it doing what I did. Well, thank you. It's had a huge impact on me and I'm sure it's going to have a huge impact on all our listeners as well. And many thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us again. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation and got as much out of it as I have. I'm sure you will have done. Please do tune in again next week when we will be turning our attention to different periods and places. Our guest will be Anders Engberg Pedersen, Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of Southern Denmark. Anders is the author of Empire of Chance, published in 2015, which argues that the Napoleonic Wars not only changed the nature of warfare, but also shaped our habits of thought and models of knowledge, for example, by triggering new approaches to concepts of chance and probability. He's written a lot about how war and war writing shape society. So we've got lots of questions to put to him. And we're also going to be asking him about his research into how images of war from maps to video games shape emotional responses to conflict. So please do join us again for a very different but equally fascinating discussion. If you would like to support our project, please do share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. 
And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. It really helps people find the show. And if you'd like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media. Just search for Visualising War or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you very much for listening.